Hello and welcome once again to Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code on our brand new show. My name once again is Dimitri and I'll be your host for the show. And I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Ben. Hey everyone. And we have a special guest today, Dan Morris. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dimitri. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So can you can you tell us a little bit about how you got into programming and what made you choose Apple platform development? Yeah, definitely. So um, I was working as a sign language interpreter, and I was doing that as a freelancer. And so obviously, I had a bunch of um, administrative tasks that I was responsible for. And I found that after doing that for a few years, I, I probably could be more efficient in how I handled those tasks. And so um, this was right around the time that um, Federico Vitici was like going crazy, uh, making the iPad his uh, primary computer. And um, so I was listening to him and uh, started getting into uh, URL schemes, using URL schemes to and things like that. And the deeper I got into that, the more I wanted to do, of course. And so I started learning uh, a little bit of Python to uh, go into my, my contacts and pull out specific contacts and uh, do things with them. And uh, I found that that process of uh, like creating something electronically or digitally and having it um, persist was fascinating and highly rewarding. Uh, and it was it was a kind of a counterpoint to what I was doing as a sign language interpreter, where I would walk into a situation and do my job and walk away and it completely went away. Like the communication took place and like it could be a completely successful uh, interpreting appointment, but there was like nothing left to be able to look at and know that it was uh, successful, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so I'm just automating tasks and found that highly enjoyable. And um, eventually I got to the point where I realized like I'm, I'm actually enjoying that side of things more than I'm enjoying the, the interpreting and um, started looking at ways that I could learn how to code. And I found out about Lambda School, and it seemed like it was uh, kind of the sweet spot in between like a thorough education and uh, like not taking forever and costing a ton of money. Um, and so enrolled in Lambda School and uh, for the last few years, I been using a, an iPad as my primary computer, um, like my hero at the time, Federico. Um, and so to me, it made sense. Like I had the choice to learn web, which was like JavaScript, kind of you, uh, or iOS or data science, which was super, I felt like would be super mathy. And so um, wasn't math is like, I'm fine with math. I like math, but it's not like my most favorite thing. So decided to uh, go with what I was familiar with and um, 
yeah, really used to. And so that was iOS development. Nice. Yeah, I I feel like development is one of those thing, one of those playgrounds where you can really build anything. Like everything is off limits, uh, and you can make whatever you want, and you can like be that inventor that we all kind of wanted to be uh, growing up. Uh, and we it can actually be a reality when doing software development because you have full control over a lot of things in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's super. Yeah. It's it's super rewarding to to make something. And have it be useful and like six months down the road still be using that tool that you made and thinking whoa i've like you know it took a lot of hours to make it but i've for sure made that time back and then some uh by using the tool that i made so how did, mm-hmm. how did your experience uh with ios felt in particular once you got into lima school differ from maybe what you thought it would be i'm always interested to hear kind of especially when people maybe were technology enthusiasts right um, but not necessarily programmers, yeah. how their experience of what real programming is once you get into it, in, in, into it a little bit more deeply um, compared to like what you think it might be. Because certainly, you know, on TV and stuff like that, there's always these depictions of what a programmer is or what a hacker is or any of those kinds of things. And they're all kind of laughably inaccurate. So it's just, it's, it's, I'm always yeah. interested to hear kind of how that like popular opinion is juxtaposed with, with how you came to think of it once you got into it. Yeah. So for me, I would say that um, I expected to be doing more like data structure and algorithm type uh, problems, like like thinking really hard about how to solve very, very difficult problems. Um, And instead, it was a lot more of like, okay, how do you do this with iOS? How do you like grab the date off of a date picker? Or how do you populate some choices onto, uh, uh, you know, a scroll picker or something like that? And it was just like solving these like, not like insignificant, but small problems. And like, how do you do it specifically on this platform uh, that I'm working on? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oftentimes. The, Apple gives us so many great APIs for building apps that the hard things are like, how do I change the color of the uh, navigation bar? And that's like a total head scratcher uh, compared to actually like, oh, I'm recording video and audio at the same time. And it was like two lines of code. Um, right. So that's often very interesting. And I feel like there's like an infinite amount of questions like, how do I get the date that's on the date picker? Or how do I change the color of the navigation bar? Like there's there's so many questions like that that are just not big, difficult problems, but uh, take a little bit of work. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. It is It is okay. funny how we've become, you know, on iOS in particular, we've kind of become spoiled by the by the platform in that, like Demetri was saying, where some things you'd think would be really difficult. It's like, well, it's just a couple lines of code and it's done. And then other things you're like, this shouldn't be this difficult. And it turns out you're like digging through the documentation and trying to figure out how to change one little thing. Um, and it can yep. it can really eat up a lot of your time. Uh, I think that's I don't think that's probably unique to iOS, but it is something that with all of the the built in uh, work that Apple has done on the platform, I think it definitely uh, it makes us you know it makes us a little spoiled occasionally. Right, and I think that the problems that I thought that I would be approaching as a computer scientist yeah. or a computer programmer, I think most of those problems, like honestly, were solved like. 40 years ago or 60 years ago or something like that. You know what I mean? Like we don't really need to think about how to, whatever, how to create an array or something like that. That's a solved problem. Yeah. 
So then, kind of leading into that, um, now that you've you finished your your training at Lambda School and you have gone about the process of looking for a job, um, so how has that been maybe different from either what you expected or maybe how you've you know you've gotten jobs in the past? Like what is I'm also really interested in hearing, particularly from a junior's perspective, what it's like to go through a technical interview and and have to deal with all that because it is. It seems to me to be not unique, but certainly a a process that is not necessarily that widespread in other industries, at least not the way that sort of we do it in our industry. So, um, yeah. it, it and it's as everyone knows who's done it or is, is about to do it, it, it can be kind of a, a complicated mess. So, I'm just kind of you know interested to hear uh, you know how that process has gone for you. Cool. Okay. I feel like you asked a lot of things, and I'm sure I won't remember to cover all the bases that really you asked. Really just interview, like going on a technical interview, how, how has that worked for you? Sure, yeah. Uh, so um, I think I can just go ahead and, I don't know if announce is the right word, but just say that uh, I actually just recently was hired at Nordstrom to work on their mobile apps team, and I'm super excited Congratulations. Uh, for that. That's huge. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, and so I can speak specifically to that and I've done a couple of other interviews, but this was like the second or third company, probably the third company that I've interviewed with. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the technical interview. Um, so I guess the process at, at Nordstrom looked like, um, I, I knew some people that, um, were working there already, and one of them recommended me for a position. So I talked to an engineering director, and he's like, "Okay, cool. You seem like you'd be a good fit. I'm gonna turn in your resume, and we'll go from there." The next step was I got an email with um, just like, yeah, it was like a, just a link, and they wanted me to do a coding assessment, is what they called it. It also had a little bit of behavioral questions after. Uh, I did the the coding part, um, and that was like I had one hour to do a coding problem, and um, then it asked a couple of questions about it, like runtime complexity, explain your approach. Um, I think were the two questions it asked about the actual coding assessment, and then uh, after that there was a few questions like why do you feel like you would be a good fit uh, for working at Nordstrom, something like that. Um, so those that was all recorded like not there were no live people um just everything was recorded the questions were recorded and i recorded an answer and sent it back in they looked at it and then invited me to a hire day which uh, i feel like is fairly typical among like some of the larger tech companies um so this was a four and a half hour process the first half hour was listening to uh, a few different like leaders in the tech organization at Nordstrom talk about their particular um, area of expertise or their specialty and openings that would be available. Uh, and then after that was a series of four one-hour interviews or 50-minute interviews uh, with senior engineers and engineering managers um, where I did some behavioral kind of talking about, tell me about yourself, that kind of question, and then doing a, a code challenge or two um, with them. Nice. How much? Seems like quite an involved yeah, process. For sure. 
How much do you think of that was maybe like COVID specific versus uh, just kind of maybe part of their process? Could you tell? Yeah, so I know that typically a higher day uh, would be live and um, I don't know for sure, but I think it would be like on a whiteboard as opposed to in an online code editor. Um, but I feel like generally speaking, the process uh, as much as possible is basically the same. I don't know if there's always a coding assessment beforehand or not, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll know more about that like once I actually get in and get to know some, some of my cohorts. Right. Yeah. Well, very cool. That I'm, I'm, I'm just super excited for you. And, and, uh, um, I think it's going to be a, a really great experience and, and I, it, it sounds like the team over there is great. And, and I'm sure that you will, you will learn probably as much as you learned at Lambda school, you'll learn that again in the next like six, six months to a year of being on the job. That's definitely true. So like when I first started uh, at my first full-time position, I learned so much in that first year uh, that I didn't know previously. So g getting that experience working on different things is oftentimes the best time to grow uh, and to keep on learning um, because you never really stop in this kind of uh, right. work. Right, definitely. Yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I'm actually looking forward to. I love I love learning new things, um, digging into things. It's it's uh, yeah, it's fun and exciting, and uh, definitely looking forward to that. So speaking of of learning new things, um, now that you've kind of got that that you know both I think base and even intermediary understanding of of iOS and programming and stuff like that, um, is there anything that you and also now that kind of Lambda the 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 rigor of Lambda is is basically over for you and 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 uh something we tell you know we tell students all the time is that usually school is harder than your real job so um as hard as as lambda school or any any school that you're going to feels um it ends up it, it actually it, it feels like i'm gonna get my job it's gonna be even worse right or or, or this is just gonna continue forever um and the answer is it's really no that it it's it this is harder than than real life in many ways as far as a job um so in theory, you might be getting a little extra time here and there now that you're kind of settling into a position. Is there anything that you've wanted to, uh, to learn kind of technology-wise or about iOS or anything that, you know, now that you have a little breathing room that you've wanted to kind of just dig your teeth into? There are many, many things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I would say uh, I would one of my bigger priorities is, is learning reactive programming. Um, so probably what, what makes the most sense for where I see my career heading is something like Swift UI and combine. Um, uh, so that's, that's high up there. Um, I have an app that I actually made one month after starting at Lambda school that I still uh, haven't gone back to, to figure out how to make it actually useful. So like, I kind of it kind of like processes data this app that I made, uh, but I am still working on how to actually get data into the app, um, and so that's something that that I would like to go back to and uh, get that figured out. Um, let's see, I feel like there was one more thing I was going to say, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's a, a couple of things. Oh, I know, um, learning learning 
how to make a backend thing that my app can use. And whether that's whether that's like getting good at um, CloudKit mm -hmm. or you know figuring out uh, Django or Node right. or Something like that. Or Swift. Or Swift on the server. That's also an option. Yeah, sure. There, that's definitely definitely an option, right? Cool. Yeah, I've actually been using Vapor a lot um, in my full time job, and it's it's quite fascinating how easy it is to put something together once you get the ball rolling with yeah. it. Yeah, interesting. That's super cool. I might. Yeah, it's, it's something to think about. It's kind of my my uh, go to thinking because I'm in Seattle. Um, my go to um, language is C sharp because there's so much work around here that's C sharp. And so if I could get that, at least get some familiarity with that, then that would open up a lot of opportunities for me down the road, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, to be able to use the, the, the foundation that I've built in Swift on the back end, that would be pretty sweet. In fact, CodeCompletion.io is written in uh, the, the published, using the published library, which is uh, written by John Sandell. That allows you to write Swift and have it turn into HTML. So Get out of here. That's all awesome. Swift. Yep. <laughs> Swift all the way down. Nice. <laughs> on the, on the show, anyway. Uh, cool. Well, is there anything that you... Are, are there any burning questions that, that you have for us as your former instructors? Um, or if, if is there any advice that you want or, or anything? I wanna, we want to make sure that we give... Whenever we have a guest on, particularly a junior, we want to give you an opportunity to to ask any questions that you might have for us or any advice that you're looking for or anything like that. Please well, pick our awesome. brains. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate that. Um, well, I mean, if I can just be super duper selfish, of course. Um, I'm starting a position on Tuesday. So what suggestions do you have for starting a new position? I mean, you've both been in that place and you've, I'm sure made mistakes. We all do. Right. But you've also, I'm sure brought, juniors onto a team and like what makes a good junior what what recommendations what suggestions do you have for someone who's starting a new position Dimitri, you want to... i think one of the hardest yeah uh, i think one of the hardest, hardest thing when joining a new team is acclimating yourself to their code they probably have a significant code base that you need to just jump into and you're kind of expected uh to be able to work with it um and that can be some of the hardest things sometimes now, thankfully, with Swift and with Objective-C, uh, we have Xcode, so that makes it much easier to kind of mentally map out how code works. Just stick a breakpoint and follow it down the rabbit hole, um, and you can slowly but surely uh, learn more about what's going on uh, behind the scenes. Sometimes just drawing it out, having a map that you can go ahead and reference when you don't necessarily know how all the components fit together or how all the screens are laid out, especially if there's not necessarily like one storyboard. Um, it can be kind of hard. Um, but oftentimes, one of the easiest wins you can get is to just pick a small feature that might be missing um, and implement it. Uh, try to just go deep dive into that one little section of the app so that way you can kind of uh, increase your familiarity from there. Um, and you don't necessarily need to have an entire mental model of uh, pro probably years of development uh, all jammed into your brain within a few weeks because that's that's incredibly hard to do. Uh, ben, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think all that was really well said. Um, kind of to your point, sort of staking a claim on the code a little bit by, by like, he's, like Dimitri said, kind of picking out a little piece of it 
and then trying to modify it, trying to improve upon it, trying to invent a small piece, um, you know, a little area feature or something that doesn't exist yet, uh, whether that be from the backlog or, you know, if it's just something that your, your team said, hey, this feature doesn't exist and we'd like it to. Um, however you get that information, being able to stake a claim on that is good because ha- once you have a foothold on the code, it doesn't feel as daunting. It's kind of like uh, I remember my first probably like couple of weeks or my first month or so at, in college. Um, the school I went to UCF in Orlando is is very, very spread out. They, they, they got a ton of land in the 60s and they developed this campus. And so it's like this very widely spread out kind of sprawling campus. And even as, you know, probably particularly as a freshman, I had classes like all over the place. And, and so not only could I not find my way, but occasionally people would stop and say, hey, where's this building? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm a freshman. I, don't, I can't help you, right? And, and for a long time, it really felt like the campus was just so big and so complicated that I was never going to be able to figure out where stuff was. You know, I'll carve out like little bits of where I need to go, but I won't, I won't ever have like a working mental model for what the campus looks like in my head. Um, and I feel like code is often very similar to that. And and the moral of that story is I did eventually figure it out. And and more I was there, the more I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's over here. And people would stop and say, hey, where's this building? I go, two buildings over to the left. Even places that I didn't even have classes in. Like, it just You eventually kind of just figure out where stuff is. And I feel like code is the same way. When you get into a new code base, it feels it feels very foreign. Even if it's in a language and a platform and, and a setup that you have experience in, it can still ve- feel very foreign, and for and especially because since you didn't write it, right? Like in many cases, the code you work on is code that you wrote, and especially when you're in school. So when you get out and you're like, all this code exists, but it didn't come from me, right? It came from other people. It just feels very, very foreign and, and kind of uncomfortable because you're like, I'm supposed to know what this is doing, but I don't because even though it's code that I can read, it's not code that I have sort of... Uh, it's not part of me, right? Like I haven't lived with it long enough to, to be able to build that mental model. So uh, my advice after all that is basically to say um, you want to be uh, comfortable being kind of uncomfortable. It's okay that you don't understand and you don't know everything and every nook and cranny of that of that code base. That's okay and that's to be expected. Um, and, and also know that that feeling will pass. Eventually you will, the more you get into it, the more you'll understand. And then it will feel more like home to you. And, and when someone says, I need X feature built, you'll know, okay, well, I have to go over here and insert this piece here. And I, you know, you'll just think, you'll know kind of how that would fit in. Whereas when you start and they said, I need feature X added, you're gonna be like, uh, I don't know. I don't know where that. Go- I don't know where it goes. I don't know how it fit in. I don't understand enough about this to to be productive. And it can feel very like disconcerting. I think to a programmer in particular, since we like order and structure and everything to be kind of a certain way, it can feel very disconcerting to be in charge of something in a way. Right? Even if you're the junior on the team, you're still part of the team that produces and maintains that code. So it can feel. It can feel weird to be like I'm in charge of this, but I don't understand how it works, and I don't know what I don't know the history, right? Like that's another thing is, you know, you might think, well, I could do it this way, and then someone says, well, yeah, don't do it that way. We've tried that three times in different ways, and it didn't work. Here's what here's the approach you should take, and right, and that can feel kind of not great either because it's like, oh, I, I should have known that, right? I should, but you shouldn't have done that because you weren't part of the team, you weren't part of that decision. So um, I will say, basically, that's a long way way of saying like. Just be sort of okay with the fact that you're not going to be perfectly in tune with the code, and that 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 will, your time will come with that. 
and and ask tons of questions kind of in 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 sort of replacement of that knowledge um and and i want to point that out in particular for you and for Ian the junior because particularly when you're in school you're mostly writing code that is either from scratch or it is like a well-defined prompt that we give you um and so mm-hmm. coming into a super potentially super big pre-existing code base is not something you're going to have a ton of experience with and it and and i can tell you that it you know i've hopped jobs several times and and it always even after a decade of experience it, it still feels you still kind of feel just as helpless in the very very beginning um and sure. and, it, and for a while that that i re- like really worried about that as a professional right like i should be picking this up faster i should be getting you know i've been doing this for a while now that part of it is always going to be new and scary no matter how much experience you have so uh so don't despair i guess is my is my point like don't don't feel that bad about it if it feels if it feels because it feels that way for everyone no matter how much experience you have yeah definitely pick your coworkers' brains as much as you can especially now that everything is kind of remote and you have less of an opportunity just to walk over yeah. and ask like try make a point of like doing it more often than you think would be too much yeah. uh because that you're going to need all of that help at the beginning to get your foothold in um so definitely go slack them uh not necessarily individual people but slack everyone as well because one person might be busy but another might be free to go ahead and explain it it should feel like you're being a little bit annoying because that's kind of like the the right amount of questions to ask right because to you it feels annoying like you're like i'm just badgering these people all day long but to them right. you're an interested and excited new member of the team who really wants to dig their teeth into this problem and, and really attack it um so i unless the team is toxic right like there are teams that exist that, that don't appreciate that but as, assume we're going to assume good faith here um right. they, they are gonna they're gonna enjoy that enthusiasm they're gonna be happy to help Awesome. That's that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Sure. Um, okay, so you mentioned COVID. Uh, any suggestions? And I know that like none of us really has experience with this any more than anyone else. But uh, <laughs> suggestions for getting to know teammates uh, during COVID, like. Um, yeah, I mean, like you want to have like you don't need to be like inappropriately personal but at the same time you don't want to just be like answer my questions and that's all kind of relationship or do you i don't know what are your thoughts i think Uh, it's important to get a a feel for the team you're on like do they joke around do they post silly things in slack um and you can just like any other situation start taking part in those shenanigans Um, And then it's not all business, 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 because the higher ups want it to be that, but that doesn't make for an enjoyable place uh, to work for the most part, especially if you are working on a team. Like, I can't say much because I'm pretty much working alone on the current project that I'm working on. So there isn't much uh, from that point. But we do have a channel where we all post when we are available for the day and when we leave, when we go and get lunch. um, And... Uh, sometimes we post silly things we find on the internet or interesting things that might help our teammates. Like, oh, I hate, I heard you were working on this. Uh, you might be interested in this. Um, and to try to start learning about what their interests are, um, both professional and personal. Um, I, I don't think there are too many boundaries that like shouldn't be crossed in that regard, um, especially if you're going to be working with each other. 
uh, it's important to know who you are working with um, so that way you can work most effectively with them. Yeah. And something you could try uh, that I've heard that I've kind of wanted to try but have never actually gotten the opportunity to do is um, I – this was several years ago, so before COVID. But in a remote environment, you know, being – like Dimitri said, being remote requires you to be more intentional with your – communication right it's not so much that you can just like wheel over to your your coworkers cubicle or whatever and just start talking to them you'd be more intentional because you have to slack them or, or whatever um but something that i read about that i thought was pretty cool i don't remember which company it was but some company had implemented this this like just very general not work focused activity that they called mr rogers and the idea was it's a, mr rogers activity is basically and I, it, the point is to get to know your neighbor right so like meeting your coworkers. So what you would do is you would arrange like a 15, 20 minute video call with presumably a random person on, at your company, right? Not someone necessarily that you work closely with. It's, it's to foster kind of like cross team collaboration and stuff like that. Um, and the goal is to not talk about work. Instead, it is to talk about either something that you enjoy or compare, compare your, your hobbies or whatever. I've, they, in the article that I read, people said that in some cases people became musically inclined and they like, created a song together one of them would play the guitar and everybody else would sing over the video call and he'd record it and turn it into a song you know crazy stuff right but like but pretty cool and 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 i think the creativity that could be sort of spurred with that with that kind of thing is pretty much limitless um and it also helps you learn about your coworkers in a way that you, you know you very likely would never learn about sort of in the normal day-to-day um so Definitely want to. I wouldn't say like on your first day you should jump in and be like, "Hey, I'm going to schedule twenty twenty minute ones with all my team to do this weird thing." Uh, I would definitely wait a little bit and kind of like you said, sort of get a lay of the land and understand who is who is like, you know, how they are and 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 both individually and also as a team dynamic um, before you were to you know implement a plan like that. But um, I I think all of Dimitri's advice is good that that you should. Uh, you know, see how see how they are, what they're like, what the what the just what the vibe is like, basically, um, and then kind of adjust from there. Uh, some teams are more friendly and wanting to do stuff like that, and some teams are a little bit more kind of all business. And I've worked at companies that are range the gamut from like super stuffy to super casual, um, and it just it really just depends on the makeup of the team. So the the, the, the important thing is gonna be that reconnaissance, that that observation that you do in the beginning, um, but then. You know, I think uh, taking an interest in your coworkers in a way that is not purely business is is a good way to to get to know them and to overcome some of that sort of natural barrier of like we're not in the room together. We have to sort of you know be more intentional with our with our friendship making. I guess. Sure. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Uh, I have more questions that I can ask, but. Uh, I realize that. Go for it. We got some time. Okay, cool. Um, so Nordstrom uses test-driven development, and I'm sure that they'll have um, uh, like things that they want me to learn specifically. But um, before I get there, you know, I've got a few days before I start. Uh, any suggestions for for building up? I mean, we learned we learned a good bit about testing uh, at Lambda School, but um, outside of that, any suggestions for learning about test-driven development or testing in general? One thing that I think is a little scary about test-driven development that most people are kind of put off by 
is that notion that you need to start with the test. You can't write any code until you have a test. And like most things, it's, it's a gray area. You can certainly start writing code, but what I think where the motivations of test-driven development come from are instead of then starting to concentrate on a UI to test that code, go ahead and just write a test to go ahead and see if your function is working, see if the inputs and outputs are what you assume they are. Um, and oftentimes that works a lot better and can be faster than just writing code without any tests at all because you have uh, one, a harness that you can go ahead and see if things are working properly. Um, but also you have a way of in the future making sure you don't break things inadvertently by refactoring some code or optimizing it. Um, because oftentimes that's when you overlook that you just broke half the things uh, when you made one thing uh, a little bit faster. So um, I think that's one of the main things to keep in mind is that just because it's called test-driven development doesn't necessarily mean you need to change how you're doing development uh, for the most part. It just involves uh, using tests as that first way of making sure that the methods and the classes that you're writing are working efficiently um, and in the way that you expect. Um, and one thing I love about writing tests in that way is you can write performance tests quite easily that check if what you're writing is reasonably fast or not. You can uh, go ahead and run it and see how many milliseconds it takes. Um, and if you see that it's taking more than 16 milliseconds, then you know uh, that's going to cause uh, scroll hitches or things like that. So um, you can immediately start to profile uh, right then and there without jumping into instruments, which is oftentimes a way overkill um, when you're just starting to write code and you're not necessarily profiling or debugging something. Um, so I think those tools that uh, tests, especially with an Xcode, uh, give you right out of the box, uh, make it a lot easier. And then you can just go ahead and see using code coverage, okay, did I touch most of my uh, class with my tests? Uh, and then that can give you a reasonably good start. Now, that doesn't mean you won't return to your tests to write better tests over time, um, but that's oftentimes a much better starting point than most people uh, will ever have, even in companies that claim uh, everything is test driven. Uh, oftentimes that's what they tell all the new employees coming in and then there's no tests at all because they were hoping uh, that the new employee would start writing tests. Um, so uh, just a few things, and like I, I can't speak for Nordstrom obviously. Um, and I'm sure if they said that everything is going to be actually test driven then it probably will be. Um, but I've seen more times than not uh, that uh, it's, it's an aspiration more than something that everyone on the team actually uh, uses day to day. Uh, so that's something definitely that you should consider. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I interviewed at a company that they, they weren't TDD, but they did claim to do pair programming for like the majority of the programming that they did. And they in the interview, they actually took me through a pair programming sort of exercise, which I had never done before at the time. Um, and, uh, it was interesting and kind of weird, but, and it was, it was, I don't know if it was full TDD, but it was, it did, it certainly involve writing tests as part of the production process. Um, and then the funniest part is that at the last part of that interview, the last person I talked to kind of gave me like the real, the real deal, I guess, as, as it were about like what was actually going to go down. 
um, because the you know six rounds before that were all had presented this one sort of way of doing things, and then the guy at the end I think was just being more honest with me. He was like, "Yeah, like because I was like that the pair thing was interesting, you know, and writing the tests and kind of being all integrated, and I had never really done that before at the time." Um, and uh, he's like, yeah, it's something that we do sometimes, but he's like, mm, the majority of the time we're just sitting at our own desk doing our own work and we're not really. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, so that it's, there, you know, the interview is one thing and then sort of the reality is another thing. And I'm not saying that that's not what Nordstrom is going to do to you, but, but it is, that does happen where sometimes the interview process is, doesn't exactly match uh, <laughs> what the real experience is like. Um, but if it is the case that they do that, um, I think all of the training that you've gotten about testing will serve you well. And I think what Dimitri said was very well said that uh, it's easy to go overboard with testing and with TDD um, and with instruments and with kind of all of that sort of the, the measurement, right? The measurement of your code's efficacy can get out of control um, and, and you want to take a measured approach, right? Like if you're building an SDK is going to be used by millions of people. You want to test that very thoroughly by every possible angle you can, you can manage to think of. Um, if you're just starting out building something new, you don't need a full blown 100% code coverage test suite written before you write a line of actual code. Like that's silly, right? You, you want to sort of step up your level of, I guess the seriousness of it kind of as the code gains in size and in, and in importance. Um, so, and one thing you also want to think about is if you go full in on TDD, you're designing your code for your tests, not for its actual use case, because you're going to be writing tests before anything else. So always keep in mind that writing code is as much about interface design than writing, like drawing an actual interface. You're deciding how other people on your team are going to be using that code by choosing what methods are available and how those methods do the work that they do and what outputs they offer and things like that. So always take a moment to kind of sit down before you start anything and map out a loose diagram of, okay, what is my code going to actually be doing? That way you have a clear destination in sight and it's not just like uh, trying a whole bunch of random things out because you can try out a bunch of random things in your head while you're just in front of a piece of paper with a pencil. Um, and uh, oftentimes that's, that's one of the easiest ways to kind of get a good mental image of what you want to be working on. Um, and then that's going to change, of course, as you start developing. You're not going to think of everything. Um, though as you gain more and more experience, you're going to be better at, better at that process. Uh, so you can save a lot of time up front by kind of sketching that out. Um, and then it becomes obvious what your test should be or what your interface is going to look like and how the UI team is going to work with that or if you're writing the UI, how that's going to work with the back end. Um, so all those things kind of fit together the more you just sit down and think about them uh, rather than just jumping in head first um, can give you quite a bit of benefit. Yeah, I think that's that's very good advice. It's It's very common for everyone, juniors and seniors alike, to want to sort of dive right into code. Um, and as much as we would tell you in class, right, like you shouldn't like, especially during things like build week where, you know, a process where you spend a whole week building a product, you should not be writing code in the first five minutes of <laughs> the build week. Like that's bad, right? That's, that's going right. to probably be code you're not going to keep, right? It's probably going to be code you're going to end up throwing away because you don't have a plan yet for what you want to do. So having, that was good advice then during build week. And I think, I think it's, it's even better advice 
uh, as you enter your, you know, your first uh, programming job is, is, um, you know, you can go overboard with planning as well, but again, moderation, right? Like, uh, think a little bit ahead, a little bit of scribbles on a paper potentially could save you a half a day or a day of code that you end up throwing away anyway, because it ended up not being a, you know, a good route for you. Um, and so, uh, you know, the best code that you'll ever write is the code that you don't write. So, so if you can, if you can uh, save yourself a little bit of that, then that's, that's usually, I think time well spent. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so as experienced iOS developers, um, just to kind of put a bow on the test driven development, um, topic, are, are there any things specific to iOS, um, iOS development that are like kind of gotchas when it comes to testing or, uh, yeah. Like what are the hard things to test and how do you handle that? I think the, one of the thing that Apple seems to be really pushing more and more, um, and I think it's coming from the TDD uh, completionists, uh, is UI tests. And UI tests are not as useful um, as you might assume. Uh, your UI is going to be changing a lot, especially as you make different decisions. Um, and having a test that... Kind of automates a certain process uh, might not be super useful, uh, especially when you can go ahead and, as the developer, take the time to run through that process on your phone. You are essentially the UI test, the unit tester for the UI, um, and if you do a good job at that, you're not going to get very many benefits out of a complete uh, UI testing uh, suite. Now, of course, it depends if everyone on your team is uh, at the same level as you are when it comes to. Uh, making sure that the quality is there. Um, and I've seen cases where that's not always the case. Um, so I can see the benefits of it, um, but uh, it's it's always something that you should uh, keep, in, keep in mind that is not completely and totally useful in the long run for a lot of things. Now, it is useful for things like taking a million App Store screenshots, uh, especially for an app that needs to go in the App Store in various different languages, UI testing, great for that. Um, but for making sure that the button is positioned where it's positioned and that it clicks when you tap it, uh, not as useful. Um, now, one thing that I also want to point out is that you don't necessarily only have to write tests for your code. You can write tests while you're learning about the code that you're jumping into to see how it works and to add to the testing suite, especially if one is not there. Um, so. One thing, one, some of the first unit tests that I wrote were actually for the backend that I was working with, because I the backend wasn't complete, so I wasn't sure what was there and what was not. So rather than the backend person asking me every five minutes, does this fix it, and then I would have to rebuild my whole app and go through the various uh, sequence of events to get to that point, I would just run a unit test, and that would just kick off a URL session request and check the backend to see if I get the response that I need. Um, and I was even able to set that up for the backend person. I'm saying, here, download Xcode, click this button, and you'll find out if you fix it or not. Um, so you can use unit tests in a variety of different ways um, that's not just limited to the code that you're writing. Yeah, I think cool. I think that's, that's all really good advice. In particular, I would say, uh, to kind of add on to that, that things like UI tests are 
the place where they're like I think the least useful is if you're particularly in like a pre 1.0 state or you are in a we've got a 1.0 but we're completely redesigning the whole thing for for version 2. If if that's the kind of scenario that you're in, UI tests I think are not nearly as like Dimitri said not nearly as useful because you're going to do all the work set up the UI test because you've set up the UI, right? You're going to try and test it. And then in five minutes, a designer is going to come to you and say, we've decided that this button should go over here now or that this screen should look like this. Or, you know, this stuff is just so much in flux that um, it's probably going to be a little bit of a diminishing returns kind of scenario with the UI test because as soon as you finish writing the UI test, they're going to change the UI. You have to write, you have to change the UI and then change the test to match. If it's the kind of thing where it's a Facebook or an Airbnb or something like that, that is a very long-lived, very stable um, kind of old growth style app where, like, it's been around for a long time. The UI is not changing in any significant ways. There's a ton of screens, right? Like, if you look at the Facebook app or even the Airbnb app or something like that, they have a lot of screens in there. And and that kind of scenario, it becomes kind of – it teeters to the other side where – like what Dimitri was saying with a smaller app or an app that's earlier in its development cycle, it's for UI tests in particular, it's probably just as easy to, to just run through it yourself. Plus you're going to do that anyway, because you're just going to be doing that as you're kind of building the app and testing it and seeing how things go. Um, Once you get to the point where you have this kind of hulking thing with, you know, 16 storyboards or or a million, you know, um, uh, code driven um, UI, you know, pieces of UI code or whatever, then and it's very stable. Then now the your ability to run through all of that for every time that you do something that you change something in the app is going to now become kind of this big time suck where someone is going to sit down and like touch everything and tap all the buttons and make sure everything works. And the computer can do that much much faster and more reliably. So in that kind of scenario, I think UI tests make a lot more sense. Um, but if we're talking about earlier stage stuff, it just it's likely that it's not going to pay you that many dividends because. As soon as you finish writing it, to change it, but things like you know mocking up a network controller or um, uh, you know you you are going to have to do authentication and that process isn't running yet or 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 whatever it is or even you do have an API that you're going to hit and you're ready to write some networking code writing then a test to make sure the networking code works I think really useful and and something that you should strive to do you should strive to bring that test work, the work that it takes to make those tests, as close mm-hmm. to the development of the actual feature itself as you possibly can. So I don't, I'm not going to pontificate about my thoughts on TDD, but like to me, before seems a little silly sometimes, but like basically if you can bring it as close as you can, even if it is happening after, um, that, is, that is really going to serve you well because that stuff usually once you get it working it's locked like unless the api changes or they add a bunch of new endpoints or something you'll probably never touch that code again like it'll it'll just stay the way it is once it's stable it's working you'll never have to touch it again but things that you change that you think have nothing to do with that right could cause regressions could cause problems with that code and so having those tests that can tell you right okay, I ran the test and it failed. Oh, the network controller failed for some reason. What's up with that? Oh, it's because I made this change over here that I thought had nothing to do with it. It turns out it's it's related in some silly way that it wasn't obvious. That's really where I think tests are worth their weight in gold. Um, and even if they all pass, you just get that kind of, like that sense of sort of um, 
you know, feeling good about the work that you've done, that you've completed before you release this update or whatever, that you're not going to put this out in the world and have it crash on half of your users' devices and then, you know, have to spend the next three days not sleeping and, and fixing it, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a security blanket. It is a, it is a, a way to make sure that you don't uh, break things that you had working before. Um, and I think that's, those are all great uses of those. The, the UI tests have their place, but I think they're not quite as widely applicable. And one thing to always keep in mind with unit tests is they won't produce bug-free code. Right. That's up to you to ultimately go ahead and test and think of the scenarios in which your code is just going to break ahead of time. Um, and generally speaking, if you go ahead and do that, there's never going to be a bug that's reported that is a surprise. Right. You already know of that bug. You just didn't solve it yet. Um, because you went and thoroughly tested yourself um, and thought of the situations where things might not go right um, and what can cause those problems. Tests are great for, as Ben said, making sure that code that you wrote doesn't stop working sometime in the future because it relies on something that might have changed under the hood. Maybe Apple's framework's changed. Who knows? Um, that's where tests are tremendously useful, but they will never produce bug-free code. That's entirely up to the developer still um, and everyone working together to make sure that um, everything continues to work smoothly. And that idea, I think, is a little bit of a of a, a fantasy that some people tend to buy into more than others. And so, something to be on the lookout for for this job and any future job that you may have, or any job that you know our, our listeners may have, um, is that's to me that's one of the signs of like team health. When, you, when you're assessing a company or a team to work with or you are on that team and you are like deciding, is it time for me to move on or, is it, or should I stay here? Is there more for me to, to gain and, and to learn right, from being part of this team? One of those things is, is like how much they treat the testing situation as sort of a cult and how much of it they think of it more like in a healthy, it's useful, it has its place, it's, it's beneficial, but it is not the end-all be-all. Um, and if, if you detect that you're getting into that kind of like cult vibe where they think that as long as the tests pass, everything's good, especially if that's happening, if that's pressure coming from outside the engineering team, if that's coming from like the marketing team and the VP and the whoever, uh, because they know even less, right, about how that works technically. And if they get buy into this idea that like, well, the tests pass, so everything's great, like we're going to have bug-free code. Not only is that a, an unhealthy thing to think, but also that can lead to then undue pressure on you and your team when the code doesn't work, right? Because they're like, what the heck, man? Sure. The test passed. Why, why is this broken? Why can't we release the app today? It's like, well, because the tests aren't perfect. And like, they don't, you know, like we know all those reasons, but they, they don't necessarily know all those reasons. So that's, to me, that's kind of like a little um, canary in the coal mine for me of like when I'm just sort of at a job and assessing my tenure there and how much longer I'm going to stay. And, or if I'm interacting with them in like an interview kind of scenario, how much do they, do they have a healthy relationship with testing or do they not? And, and kind of, then you can go from there. That's awesome. Thank you. Sorry. That's, that's uh, yeah, super useful and very timely and applicable for me. So hopefully it's helpful for other yeah. folks that are listening. Well, so who are we sponsored this week by, Dimitri? So this week's episode is brought to you by Bon Voyage, a new full-stack iOS application development course from Johnny B. With this course, you'll learn how to build both a full, a full iOS client app and associated React web administration application. 
The app and the site will, man will integrate with Firebase as well as Stripe and Played for payment processing. Bon Voyage is a place to book extravagant vacations and you'll gain the skills to build the iOS app from the ground up and integrate everything you need to provide a world-class vacation booking experience. To find out more and sign up for the course, visit Bon Voyage, that's B-O-N-V-O-Y-A-G-E dot app slash course, and be sure to follow Bon Voyage's instructor at Johnny B Codes on Twitter to stay up to date with all his courses. Those links will be in our show notes, so please be sure to check them out. Thanks again to Bon Voyage e-commerce app course for sponsoring code completion. So now that we've gone through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Ben, can you take it away? Sure. So first, what we're going to do is take a look at last week's question. Um, uh, let's see. The winner of, of the, the shout-out that we're going to give for last week is to Craig Swanson. Congratulations, Craig, on sending in the correct answer and being first to do so. Um, uh, so Craig wrote, I think it, uh, that if there is a problem of returning the optional as a date cell, we would want to simply create a new instance of date cell and return that because we would want to know there is a problem and address it. Some sort of fatal error might be more useful for the developer. So if you look at the screen or if you're listening uh, to the podcast, if you take a look at the, um, the show notes, you can see last week's solution. Uh, it's just the, the same prompt. It's basically a... Um, uh, we're trying to dequeue a cell and then use that cell in the cell for at method as part of the table of data source. And the question is essentially, what's wrong with the code that you see on your screen? Um, what's happening at line five is that we're returning a date cell. If there, we're not able to dequeue a cell with that identifier and that um, is able to be optionally downcasted to a date cell specific type. So we're just returning a blank one. That's not going to crash. It's, it will work. But the downside is that you'll get just sort of like a blank cell on the screen, and it won't be immediately obvious what's wrong. Um, it won't lead you to the answer quickly. So what might be a, even a better way to go than this, this won't crash, but it's also not very helpful, is to instead inside that um, that else, that early exit of, of the guardlet, would be to put in maybe something like fatal error and have it actually crash. You might, in this case, want it to crash during your production cycle so that you can fix it quickly. You can, of course, identify the crash and fix it quickly. Rather than letting it sit around, maybe you don't notice the date cell didn't get populated properly, and then you accidentally ship a version of the app that doesn't do what you want. So in some cases, it's actually more beneficial to let the app crash and deal with it rather than uh, you know keep that as like the prime directive. We never want the app to crash, and we don't, but sometimes it's actually useful to write intentional crashes into your code when you want it to break so that you can fix it immediately. This week's prompt, again, if you look in the show notes, if you're listening uh, to the podcast or if you just look on your screen, um, is uh, as you see here, it's a conditional statement. Um, we have an if statement where the meat of the operation happens in the else block. In fact, we would like to invert and reduce the if statement so we have as few parentheses as are necessary, and we can leave out the else block entirely. The condition is as follows. Given three bools, A, B, and C, they're called bool A, bool B, and bool C, um, along with three integers, A, B, and C as well, um, uh, we'd say if bool A and not bool B or in parenthesis, bool C and int A equals int B, or int C is greater than int A, and parenthesis, we want to do nothing. Otherwise, we want to do the work that we need to do, whatever that work happens to be. In this case, it's just a print statement. So that was a lot. And if you're listening, it's going to be difficult. But if you look at the screen, look at the, the chapter art or the show notes, or look on the screen if you're watching the YouTube video, um, we've got the prompt here. 
basically we want to do what we want to do to this if else statement is invert the logic so that um, the the print statement would end up being inside the if and then we wouldn't even need an else because since the the other side of this if else is just to do nothing we would just not even include an else so the, your task for this week is to take the logic that you see in the conditional and somehow invert it so that uh, when it is true it causes the print statement to run um, and then we would just not have an else. And as a little bit of a hint, down there at the bottom of the prompt, there is a possible solution um, that doesn't work. So if if this if that was your immediate idea to to flip it, that one does not work. So we're giving you a hint there. Um, if you could send us your suggestions or your your ideas on Twitter, we're just at Code Completion. The first person to do so will get a shout out in next week's episode. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so with all of that out of the way, it's time for Compiler Error, a segment where I get to test my fellow completionists and our guests' knowledge about Swift, Apple, and all things development. So if you've ever played science or fiction at home, the rules should be instantly recognizable. I'll read out some statements, most of which are factual or valid code completions, if you will, while only one of them is an outright made-up lie, aka the Compiler Error. The best part, it's up to each of you to use your master debugging techniques to determine which one is the Compiler Error. So let me go ahead and queue up those prompts. Uh, so we do have a theme uh, today, and that theme is long, weird Objective-C method names. Everyone's favorite. Everyone's favorite. Uh, so we're taking a break from Swift and from general Apple trivia. Uh, so let's go through these one at a time. So clocking in at 392 characters, and let me take a deep breath here. Encode reprojection to command buffer source texture, previous texture, destination texture, previous luminance, moments texture, destination luminance, moments texture, source texture two, previous texture two, destination texture two, previous luminance, moments texture two, destination luminance texture, uh, moments texture two, previous frame count texture, destination frame count texture, motion vector, vector texture, depth normal texture, previous depth normal texture, is the longest public method name as of iOS 13, and surely does something but its documentation is still marked as no overview available online. Let's go to the next one. So number two, the smallest on this list, convolve with destination, temp buffer, source offset to region of interest X, source offset to region of interest Y, kernel, kernel height, kernel width, divisor, background color, and options is one of the many related Objective-C methods in the Accelerate framework for manipulating images. Next, we have a private method on UI view controller, attention class dump user. Yet, yes, it's us again. Although swizzling and overriding private methods is fun, it wasn't much fun when your app stopped working. Please refrain from doing so in the future. Okay, thanks, bye. Is actually a no-op, though is used by some third-party libraries. And finally, we have related to CarPlay, init with enable fan, Enable air conditioner, enable climate control, enable auto mode, air circulation mode, fan speed index, fan speed percentage, relative fan speed setting, temperature, relative temperature setting, and climate zone is a public method with full online documentation, though now deprecated. So those are our statements for this week. One of them is uh, completely false. Uh, so, Dan, why don't you go through each of these and kind of give us your thoughts as far as which one is that compiler error? 
awesome. Thank you for asking me to do this. This is super exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the first one, um, I, I have no idea. It looks like something like from metal or something like that. It's, uh, it's a lot of textures and vectors going on. I, I don't doubt that it's real. Um, let's see. Was it the second? Oh, no. The Do So in the Future, Thanks, Bye. That's number three. Yeah, number three. Mm, yeah, I, I have my doubts about whether that is. So So it, just so I'm clear, I'm, I'm trying to know which one is like not real. Is that is that what we're yeah, in yeah. here? Yeah. Three okay. of them are accurate so and one I, of them is not. Yeah. If I had to if I had to guess, I would say three. Um, I feel like all of them are a lot more Apple feeling than uh, yeah. One, two and four are definitely more legit feeling than okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> okay. Ben? Uh, so I'm I'm guessing that you wouldn't have read off number one if it weren't real because yikes. Um, also, for you to make that up would be kind of insane. So I'm going to assume that that's real just because it's just bonkers um, that it's that it's the longest one. Because that totally seems like something you would do. You're like, you're going to search around and try and find the longest Objective-C uh, method name in iOS, thir- in iOS 13. Um, the smallest one also seems legit. Uh, what are the name of so it's part of the Accelerate framework for manipulating images. The, all, they all look... I mean, it could do other things, but it does look like it might be an image manipulator, so I can I can believe that. Um, number three, I actually... I don't know if this is right, but I've actually heard that there are... there are a few Easter eggs like this in... Uh, in things, this is a private method on UIView controller that that this kind of stuff does exist, and it's and they have sort of you know buried it way down in the SDK that you probably never touch. But if you happen to see it, uh, it's something that is kind of an inside joke. And so I could see somebody at Apple putting this in here. It does seem like Dan said very kind of out of character for them in general. Um, but uh, it is talking about swizzling methods and stuff, uh, and and then like poking fun at the idea that you've done that and then and overriding public methods, private methods, but then you broke something. So I. You know, please don't please don't mess with our stuff. I that sounds very Apple. Like the the sentiment of the of the definition sounds very Apple. So, um, so I feel like it's I'm gonna vote with number four, uh, and that's the reason is because I think CarPlay has some basic functionality where you can control parts of your car's like HVAC system and other systems that are in the car that are not just like you know music or whatever. Um, I th- I do think the company has to integrate those features um interesting that it that it's available and has full docs but is now deprecated like it's been replaced with something else that's similar or maybe they got rid of it i don't know but it, i feel like of the four that is the one that is likely to be incorrect and I'm, i probably got that wrong but that's what i'm voting for well let's find out so let's start with the first one so this one clocks in at 392 characters and it's surely long, but is it the longest? Well, it turns out it absolutely is, and it's longer by over 100 characters than the second place <laughs> as far as public API goes. Um, and the second place one is also part of Metal, um, and it also starts with encode reprojection, and I'm assuming it leaves out the two 
the all the method uh, arguments with a two in them um, because they're absolutely long. I had a lot of fun uh, running some scripts earlier today that just printed out all the longest method names. Uh, there were there were quite a few long enum statements, especially with contacts, uh, where uh, you have your mother's, uh, brother's, parents, uh, sister's name, where in some language, that's a unique word. Uh, so they needed constants for all of those. Um, and it's like this long, which is ridiculous. And it makes me very thankful for dot syntax in Swift. Um, so that first one is, of course, a code completion. Um, so let's go with number two, since neither of you picked that one either. Um, and the smallest on this list, uh, convolve with destination uh, yada yada, is one of the many related Objective-C methods in the Accelerate framework uh, for manipulating images. So the Accelerate framework, for those who don't know, is a high-performance uh, computing framework. Um, and it's full of nitty-gritty methods like this uh, to manipulate image or sound or raw buffers of data. Um, and it uses special functionality on the CPU to do that. Now, um, if you want to get a lot of speed, you need some very optimized methods that take lots of arguments like this. Um, and in Swift, the Acceler framework actually got some syntactic sugar uh, to make this all available in Swift. Now, unfortunately, Objective-C never got any of that syntactic sugar, and therefore there are no Objective-C methods anything like this in the Accelerate framework because it's a C framework. So that is a Objective-C method that I just made up um, that was loosely based off of a C version that would work on vImage um, to generate a convolution. But it most definitely is not an Objective-C method. So that is the compiler error for this week. Nice. Uh, that said, let's go through the other ones because there are some interesting things to note. Um, so the private method on UI view controller, attention class dump user. Uh, for those who don't know, once again, class dump is a tool for you to go ahead and take a sneak peek at all the private methods uh, that Apple ships in their frameworks. Um, and is oftentimes one of the only ways to do crazy things like change the background color of a search bar. Um, you know, crazy. Um, so uh, sometimes you need to use private frameworks like this if you want to make those kinds of tweaks. Of course, Apple doesn't like it because anytime you start using a private method, they can no longer change it because now a bunch of apps have that dependency on it, um, and it's kind of uh, pseudo-public at that point. Uh, so they end up having to write special cases. So they don't appreciate that very much whenever people do use uh, class dump to figure things out. Um, and this method is actually used as a part of uh, a third-party library bugshot kit, which uh, Marco Arment wrote uh, quite a while ago. And that was so that way you can take screenshots during a beta test uh, to see uh, where things are. And to prevent that framework from being integrated into the production app, it goes and uses this method as a private method that would get flagged by Apple during app review. Um, so uh, I found it very interesting that it actually used it as a method. Uh, it doesn't do anything, unfortunately. There are some bug reports, or radars, if you will, uh, that complain about this. They were expecting fire to come out of the dock connector, uh, <laughs> things like that. Nothing, of course. Uh, so they, that developer was very disappointed. Um, but it is funny, nonetheless, to see methods like this show up. Um, and finally, related to CarPlay, and it with enable fan yada yada, is actually part of the Siri Intense framework. Um, and it was deprecated for a version that took an extra parameter called car name. Uh, so, so it's even longer. <laughs> it's even longer, yeah. Nice. Um, and 
ironically enough, this method is fully documented online, whereas this this beautiful gem right here uh, at the top um, is is not. Uh, so it's I'm it's self documenting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's so long. <laughs> it's, I, I I don't know. At, at three hundred ninety two characters, it should be. <laughs> It's an entire document, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, I invite you here. Let me go ahead and quickly copy this link so that both of you can see it. I invite you to click on this link because it is very funny to see the Apple documentation website uh, with it. <laughs> so for those of you that have never looked at Apple documentation before, uh, they typically put the method name as like the header or the title of the page. And so it's it's bold, it's it's very large font, and normally it's you know, thirty characters or less. And it's not a big deal. This takes up probably a third of my screen. It's just the name of the method. And then in tiny secondary text, no overview <laughs> yeah. available. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So this one was a lot of fun to do research with. So I hope both of you had fun with that. Um, so Dan, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Yeah. Thank you both for having me on. This has been super fun. Awesome. And how can people reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Dan and Amy and Amy is spelled A-M-I. So D-A-N-A-N-D-A-M-I. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. They'll, they'll find you. And we'll, and we'll post links for all these things in the show notes as well. Awesome. Definitely. Um, and as always, I want to personally thank everyone for watching live and listening in this week. We'll be streaming every Friday. Uh, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes go live and get released. Uh, be sure to also sign up to our monthly newsletter on our website at CodeCompletion.io, where we will recap topics we discussed, reveal the answers to complete the code, and share even more things we learned in between episodes. Uh, so we are right up against the monthly mark, so we'll be having a newsletter soon-ish, as soon as we uh, write it up, so please look forward to that. Uh, and most importantly, as a new podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. Um, it's your support that really enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around these topics. So if you didn't notice, uh, we are all, um, this uh, this uh, series is now available in most podcast play players, so you can just go ahead and search for code completion and it should show up. Uh, so please be sure to use the recommendation systems, leave five stars in iTunes, um, all that jazz. Uh, it really helps us a lot because it gets us noticed, uh, so that way we can, we can uh, share what we know with more people. So once again, I want to give my thanks out to Ben, who is at Guy. That's F-E-R-R-O-U-S-G-U-Y on Twitter. Um, and once again, my name is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buñol, D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye.